as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, we continue to hear of Paul and Silas and Timothy and all the others that are going around spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, and we're going to hear about how, how Paul has found himself in Athens. And he's gotten there a little bit before Silas and Timothy, so he's kind of wandering around the city of Athens. And in verse 16 it says that while Paul was waiting for them, them being Silas and Timothy, that he's deeply distressed. And he's deeply distressed because what he sees is a city full of idols. Now to understand all of this, you need to understand that Athens at one point was a major economic capital for the world. But it has now become an epicenter for art and philosophy. It's become a people that are obsessed with talking about and developing and discovering new ideas and yes, even new gods. So there are idols everywhere. Petronius is quoted as saying in AD 62 that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. And all these gods find themselves having statues in the Parthenon and all of them have festivals for them. And so every day almost is filled with some sort of worship of a god. And Paul walks around this beautiful and intellectual and driven city only to see how discontent they have become. Only to see that they have begun to worship so many idols and this deeply troubles him. It deeply distresses his soul. And as I start thinking about Athens, I start thinking about how does this compare to to modern day America? Um, Have we begun to pursue idols and gods since we, and I would dare say that we live in a post-Christian country. And and you may be wondering what I mean by that, and and I would argue it with stats where once once the statistics would have said that most Americans proclaimed faith in a divine being. However, this is no longer the case. Because as you, as you look at the numbers, in 2020, 47% of Americans claim to belong to a church, a synagogue, or a mosque. And 48% believe that religion is important. That's less than 50. It is the minority. And in a Gallup poll in, in, in 2018-2019 said that 66% of Americans born before 1946 were part of a church. 58% for boomers, and 50% for Generation X, and 36% for millennials. This is not a trend that we're unfamiliar with, where people find themselves dwindling away from church in their early, in their late teens, early 20s. But, but Pew Research also says that 65% of American adults define themselves as Christians when asked about their religion. Which sounds like a good number, right? 65%, granted 47% says they actually belong to a church, but they, but 65% proclaims to be, be Christian, and so you realize that's down 12% from 10 years prior. And the percent of people with no affiliation to faith has risen 17 to 26%, depending on which group you look at, since 2009. 
So we live in a post-Christian world, which raises the question, how do we as the church, how do we as Christians, how do we practice? the ways of Christ in a post-Christian world. And and for some of us, we can choose option A, which is that we bury our heads in the sand, we act like nothing's going on, nothing's happening, nothing's wrong, or we can B, take our ball and go home and just say, they'll come to us eventually, or C, option three, we can recognize the reality and we can humbly and prayerfully and boldly step into it and see what God does. And I choose option three. And we'll see that Paul does as well as we continue in our text. Beginning in verse 17, it says, So he argued in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. And also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, What does this pretentious babbler have to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign divinities. This was because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, sorry, and asked him, may we know that this is new teaching, is that you are presenting. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. Now all the Athenians and all the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling or hearing something new. This is what we are talking about. They had become a people so devoted to the new thought processes, to the new gods of the day. And so Paul stood up in the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely spiritual you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at all the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And so he's saying, that unknown God that you had, this is the one I'm I'm talking about, the one that you don't even know yet. The God who made the world and everything in it, He who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor He made all peoples to inhabit the whole earth, and He allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps fumble about for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of our own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of the imagination mortals. While God was over, has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Because he has a fixed day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard this, News of the resurrection of the dead, they scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. I love how Paul, when he comes to the people and he knows that they have fundamental differences, Paul seeks to find common ground in a strategic and an intentional way. 
Paul, Paul is a Jewish man, whereas the Athenians are not. They are what the world would consider pagans at that time. They don't act, look, think, or believe like Paul or like Jesus for that matter. But Paul doesn't start with where they disagree, but instead he starts with where they agree. He chooses common ground over conflict. And he says, I see that you have no problems believing in the divine. And he builds this trust and this relationship with with relationship equity and he invests in the people and he seeks to build trust so that people will feel heard, understood, cared for. Because that's that's how trust is built. FBI hostage negotiators, um, uh, I've read some books and articles about them, and they say when you go in there, you don't just go in there telling people how stupid and dumb their ideas are, but instead you seek to understand first. Why are you doing this? What is your name? What's going on in your life? How did you end up here? What are you seeking to gain out of doing such things? And as you understand and as connection is made, then you can have authentic relationship. You can have authentic understanding which leads to the ability to speak with one another openly. But this approach doesn't happen nat- or doesn't happen quickly. It takes time and energy and compassion. The the first place I want to point this out when we were talking about Paul, the first place that he goes to mention things is he goes to the Agora. It's basically like the big shopping center. It's like going to Walmart, but he understands in uh, in Athens this is where you would go to start presenting new ideas or new gods. And as you do so, if people are intrigued by it, then you find yourself at the Oropagus. And these are the people, these are the movers and the shakers that decide whether gods are approved. And if they are approved, then they get statues and festivals and they get put in the Parthenon. And Paul not only follows their way of doing things, but he finds himself finding commonality with them as we hear in verse 22. He doesn't begin by attacking their beliefs and going, oh, you're stupid. How, how could you believe in all of this? Or he doesn't do like we would maybe do now in the South where it's like, oh, well, you think it's hot here? It's hot here in Athens, huh? Well, I know somewhere else it's going to be hot if you don't turn if you don't turn or burn, you're going to be left behind type thing. But instead, he says, I know that our beliefs are fundamentally different, but let's find commonality. And what he presents is, neither of us has an issue with the divine. I love that he says, I see that you are extremely spiritual. Because he's pointing out that y'all were not just worship one God, y'all worship many gods. Y'all worship a lot of gods. And he's pointing to them to this idea that, we've, that we both believe in the divine. He's seeking common ground. And it raises the question in my own mind, what if we practice this type of community in our world today? What if we sought the things to, uh, and to find agreeance over disagreeances? Commonality over conflict. Because Paul goes on by celebrating not just that they have things in common, but he celebrates the truth that they understand and they believe. He doesn't care who states the truth or not. Because in verse 28, he's quoting Epimenides, who is a Greek philosopher and poet. 
when he says, for in him we live and move and have our being. That is a direct quote from their Greek philosopher. And that's how they understand the gods. And he goes on and he quotes two other philosophers when he says, for we too are his offspring. He's saying, look, we agree on this, that we are God's offspring, that we live and move within God. And he uses the truth that they understand and repurposes it to point them to the heart of Jesus. He says, this God that they've been speaking of, this truth that you understand, let me tell you who it ties into. It ties into that unknown God that you've built a shrine for. And as they begin to wrap their mind around this in verse 29... We find him saying, now let's move on from the common ground. And Paul says, I need to stand my ground. But notice that he, he doesn't start there. What he does is he starts by forming relationship. He starts by forming commonality. He starts by finding the difficult balance of community without losing his conviction. Because as he shifts to conviction, what I want you to hear is that people do not push back it's hard. Now some call him a babbler and say he doesn't know what he's talking about. But after addressing the commonality and truth, he presents that God, that his God, the big G God, is nothing like these little G gods. Because why? He can't fit into the Parthenon. He is the creator of all things that the Parthenon is built of. He is greater than all of this. But even this and how he approaches it is rooted in love. Because we're called to love like Jesus did. As the hymn says, they will know we are Christians. Well, how? By our love. But too often we find ourselves choosing to die on the wrong hill. We choose to conflict over commonality. And then people never experience what we desire to share and show them because all they see is us being willing to die on the hill of opinion over conviction. We, we, we try to take ground that Jesus isn't even trying to take and we skip commonality and we str- go straight to our convictions and we would rather colonize people than converse with them. We would rather win a debate than win disciples. But as we hear Jesus in his teachings, he says over and over, the center of everything is love. This is what should drive everything else that we do. So if we're going to present Jesus in this world who so badly needs to see, hear, feel, and understand who God is and feel his presence, then we must start with being rooted in love. As Matthew 22 says, love God and love everybody else. Finding common ground, though, is not... I want you to hear this. Finding common ground is not compromising your conviction. But it's choosing to love and understand first. It's choosing relationship first. And there is a difference also in convictions and opinions. Opinions is something that you'll argue about, but a conviction is something you'll die for. And too often, we find ourselves fighting over opinions instead of standing on our convictions. We stand and fight over secondary things and we miss the primary thing which is love and relationship with Jesus Christ. We seek separation over unity, conflict over community, disagreements over agreements, and we find ourselves finding reasons that we aren't welcomed in instead of trying to welcome people into the community. 
Let us take a page from Paul's book. As Paul goes out and he seeks common ground, he seeks to understand people, and then he, out of love, presents a loving God to them. You see, what we hear in this text, and what's beautiful about it at the end, is that there are people that say, we want to hear about this again. And at that point, Paul left them. But some of them joined him. Why? Because they became believers. Why did they become believers? Because Paul cared enough to engage in relationship and to encourage them and walk with them into a relationship with God. You see, when we find common ground and we're willing to stand our ground, God can turn that into holy ground. So let us go seek common ground with our neighbor. Standing in our convictions but asking God to turn those relationships into holy ground. Amen and amen.